She's a small wonder, lovely and bright and soft curls. She's a small wonder, a child unlike other girls. She's a miracle, and I grant you, she'll enchant you at her sight. She's a small wonder, and she'll make your heart Microchips here and there She's a small wonder Brings love and laughter Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Reiser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. Scott, do you remember when, well, you don't remember when Eddie tweeted, but he tweeted that he had an artist in Moscow, and he doesn't know where he's at, and he can't get him on a plane, and that's that's how... That's my biggest memory of of Eddie Applebaum when he freaked out on social media that he had an artist that's in trouble. You get, are you going to ask him about it? Of course I am. I've been waiting all these years to bring it up to him. Well, first of all, uh, I, I don't. I I I remember when it happened, but I didn't see the tweet because uh, I didn't have a phone, so I wasn't seeing any tweets until I got back to. U.S. soil. Right, but he, he... I'm like, well, first of all, why are you tweeting it? Why aren't you getting on the, the horn and get doing something about it? <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> but uh, it was so just you were weird. laughing. I was laughing. laughing. Like, not only is Scott somewhere in Russia, un, un, which what, is funny undisclosed enough. location. Which is funny enough in itself. But your manager has the time to tweet about it and not do what he's supposed to do and find you. That's that's my point. It was so, it was it was kind of strange. So uh, who, who who's on the show today, Gabe? Eddie Applebaum. The the, the guy who would rather tweet about me being in right. Russia than help me being in Russia. Our our it's, manager. It's like, it's like when Elaine got the call on Seinfeld that her boyfriend was in the hospital and she got the uh-huh. Twizzlers or the twi- whatever it was the Skittles. Yeah, and then and then went to go see him. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, maybe he'd already made the calls, and uh, he was like, you know what? I'm just gonna put out the bat signal to everybody because that's. I mean, that's not what Twitter's for. Twitter is to you know to yell at people and make people feel like assholes, but it it could be a use, right, Ben? Yeah. What did what did you do, Gabe? Did you spring into action when you <laughs> he read laughed. That tweet? Oh, that's right. He laughed well, at me. I, no, I, I, I was disconnected with the band because they were in Russia, and I'm like, oh, what, how, how do I know what's going on? There's not going to be a, a stream of the show. You're playing in front of however many people. It, it was like, okay, I'll hear about it when you get back. Well, I heard about it. 
from Eddie's tweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I and had I no idea. You know, I, I don't remember him doing this, but I had no idea that it brought you so much joy. It wasn't joy. I was I was freaking out myself. I'm like, hold on a second. What just happened? What what's going on? And why is Eddie tweeting about it and not getting his getting on the horn? And where's Brian? And, and I think Brian was like, oh, I I had to leave. I don't. I couldn't find him. I couldn't find him. What am I supposed to do? I can't find him. I'm leaving. I got to get on a plane. How hard did Brian like, look? Is my is my question. <laughs> he waited and waited. He said, but he couldn't wait any longer. Yeah. Yeah. But he didn't well, know. He didn't know what was going on. He just didn't know where you were. Knew. He's like, yeah. I don't know how, how I got out of that. I, I'll still never really know. I mean, it was it was super terrifying. And it was one of those times where I was like, oh, I've really done it now. I've really done it now. And there's no way I'm getting out of this. But does, does, that memory, does that memory taint your whole experience in Russia? Or is there any good memories from Russia? Well, yes, it does taint. It, it, it <laughs> makes me, but honestly, I was like, even at the point when, you know, I, I'm kind of like trapped there. I was like, you know, whatever, this will be a great story. And I, I get to see parts of Russia that, uh, and Moscow that <laughs> most people didn't get to see or are never going to get to see. So I was always super kind of trying to have a positive outlook about it. But when I came back home and I was unable to sing or hit notes that I should be hitting for years. I was like, well, yeah, that wasn't worth it. That it was not a good life experience to have. Right. So there's, there might be a few people, then listeners that might not know what you're talking about. You, you, when you were choked out and mugged in Russia on tour with, at a local aid show, you flew over there, played one big show. After the show, you basically... Didn't know what out, was happening. Yeah, went out yeah. with some people from CNN. Uh, it was really kind of weird and scary over there. Like we were in a hotel and we weren't allowed to leave, and because there was where we're gonna go, and you know, like people were watching us, and you know, we didn't have internet, and it was just, it was, we were trapped. And so after the show. These guys from CNN were like, we're big fans. We'll take you out. And I was like, yes, yes, I'd, I'd love to see the town, you know. And so ends up that I end up drinking these guys under the table. And they're like, <laughs> we are too drunk. We have to go home. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, fine. I, I'll just hail a cab. You know, I'll be fine. Next thing I know, I uh, wake up in a, a dark stairwell it's completely dark my coat has been ripped open my my wallet's gone my wallet's gone uh my my phone is gone all my money i had a tin of caviar that i was going to bring home for an uh, oscar uh party that was gone uh and i was just like oh fuck you did it now you did it now and I remember just walking around in circles for about five minutes in that stairwell going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So finally I got out, I looked around and I, it was still dark and I could see these people just sort of walking and they were going to work. And it was the saddest thing I'd ever seen. They were just trudging like in the snow <laughs> and it was like they were going to some concentration camp. So I got in line with them and I started walking with them 
and you know every time i would ask somebody for help they'd say no uh, there was some woman that i went into her shop and i didn't realize i was fucked up until i asked for help and i opened my mouth and like nothing came out and i was like you know can you help me and that's when i felt what was going on and i was like oh yeah that i got choked out i was like i forgot all about it you know um so eventually you know i made it back was able to get in a cab and i was just hoping that somebody would be there and i could pay him when i got there and yeah it was a nightmare it was a nightmare i bet how long were you out like were you out for hours like, I was fucking like knocked out, like passed out. I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, it was cold though. Like you could have froze that out there. Well, I was inside, so my my attacker was nice enough to drag me inside someplace. Did okay. you I and or the police ever try to retrace your steps? Did you get back to the bar that you were at with the CNN people? Uh, well, we we did reach out to the CNN people, and they, uh, I think Eddie or something was able to get a hold of those guys, and I talked to somebody from CNN the next day and we're like, we're sorry, you know, we shouldn't have left you and we thought you'd be okay. And I was like, you know, whatever. But the, the, the police there didn't, didn't want to admit that anything had actually happened to me. And so they made me sign this statement saying that nothing did happen to me. And I just lost my, my phone and my, my wallet. And I wasn't mugged and I wasn't attacked. And I was like, hmm, that's how you do things here, huh? I got to get out of here. And then I get to the airport, and they weren't going to let me on because I didn't have a passport. That's the other thing. My passport got stolen. And I had to go to the consulate, and they got me this letter that said it was okay, but there's this woman, and she would not let me on. She's like, you don't have your passport. I'm like, but there's this letter, and it's from the consulate, and, it's, and I have the police report. And they said this would be enough. She goes, well, it isn't. And she was just <laughs> being a dick, you know, like just, she, it isn't, it isn't. And I could see the plane leaving. I was like, just, there's my plane. Just let me on the plane. Let me on the plane, please, please, please. And then she goes, you can go wait in that room. And I go in the room and by the time I get out, the plane's gone and they give me my stuff back and they go, okay, you can go. I'm like, you fucking asshole. <laughs> so I had to get another flight and that flight, uh, I had to wait another day and I get another flight and that flight was going through um, Warsaw. And the guy says to me, he goes, when you get to Warsaw, do not leave the airport. I'm like, dude, I'm never leaving an airport ever again. Don't worry about it, you know? Did you stay but, yeah. that whole extra day in the airport or did you go back yeah. to the hotel? Yeah, there was no way. There was no way. There was no way. I mean, the promoter was pissing me off because we were in a hostel and I woke up the next day. I was like, hey, let's go. I want to get this flight. He's like, Scott, Scott, re relax. We've got plenty of time. I need my coffee. I'm like, fuck you and your coffee. I, we got to go. We got to go. He's like, Scott, relax. It'll be fine. And then, of course, we get there and it wasn't fine. There's this huge line. And I was like, what am I going to do, man? You're going to make me. Ah. By that point, I'd had enough. By that point, it was no longer a wonderful life experience. It was like, I got to get out of here, you know? So that's the story, Gabe. Now we don't have to ask Eddie about it. Well, I wanted to get his take on it and see how it affected him, but I'd like to. 
Whatever. <laughs> okay. What have you guys been doing all week? I saw Jaws in 3D. You did, did you? Yeah. What'd you think? Fantastic. Yeah, fucking fantastic. Had a good time. That's that's probably my favorite movie. And I was thinking one of the things that makes it my favorite movie is that it doesn't matter. The first time I saw it in 74, 75, whenever it came out. 75. 75. And now I've probably seen it 30 to 50 times, I guess. But it's always just as good as the first time. And it's not a lot of movies that I enjoy equally every single time. Have you ever seen Jaws, Gabe? Who hasn't seen Jaws? I've seen, even I've seen Jaws. Well, you know we're not talking about Jaws 3D. We're talking about Jaws in 3D. The original. Yes. There was a Jaws 3D? Like, Jaws oh, yeah. 3 was in 3D, wasn't it? Jaws 3 was in 3D, right. That was the year of the third sequel. Are the, would you say second sequels? If, if it's part three? Yeah, but part threes. The year that part threes were all 3D, because everyone was like, get it? It's 3D. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It was Friday the 13th. Yeah. Amityville Horror. Yeah. And Jaws. They came in threes. Everything came in threes. I've seen it before. There's a movie where everyone, I think, is doing their best work. And it's like, well, you can't even argue. Like, it's absolutely Robert Shaw's best performance. Absolutely Roy Scheider's best performance. Well, we've had this conversation. I thought that you said that you think... Robert Shaw might be better in something else? Never mind what I said. Black Sunday, okay. maybe? Yeah. I probably said Black Sunday because we were talking about Black, Black Sunday. Okay. I like to, I like Never to mind what I say. Yeah. Uh, I'll remember Richard, that. Out of the three guys, maybe Richard Dreyfus has the best argument. Maybe he's as good in Close Encounters, but I don't know. I, I, I like the extras. The extras yeah. in that movie, the best extras you'll ever see in any movie. They've all got so much character. Like that one guy, that was a Ben Gardner. He's like, hello there, young feller. The, the one who stuck out for me in 3D for some reason is like the deputy. Like I never paid as much attention to him as I did this time. He's really good. Uh, the old woman who's like the receptionist at the police station at the beginning. She's fantastic. <laughs> Murray Hamilton. Oh, Murray Hamilton's the best. I was glad that he, after his the collapse of his marriage to Mrs. Robinson, he was able to, <laughs> yeah, find rebound, a job. become mayor of a, yeah. of a nice become hamlet. mayor, yeah. mayor of Shark City. <laughs> Have you ever seen this movie, Gabe? Which one? Jaws. I've seen Jaws. I thought you were saying Close Encounters. I've seen Jaws. Have you seen Close Encounters? I might have. Been in the same room when Been it was playing, but I don't room, think I stayed yeah. awake. I don't think I stayed awake for that one. Mm-hmm. What about know, The Graduate? I, I never put it on on purpose and played it and watched it, but it's been in the in the background. Maybe on the bus. Maybe. Oh, man. Just the amount of effort that you put into not <laughs> putting any effort into anything is mind-blowing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I fall asleep to everything. There was a movie I was watching. It was uh, Michelle Williams, maybe about 10 years ago. I was watching it this week. She was uh, uh, married to... I can't remember these guys' names. 
and then the the neighbor was mm-hmm. flirting with her, and then they started a affair. What was the name of this movie? What the hell was it? Blue called? Valentine. No, I gotta look it up. She doesn't have an but, affair in Blue Valentine. What the hell is she in? Uh, it's not I, the Kenneth Lonergan movie. No. Uh, Manchester. Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen. And Michelle she Williams. She has an affair with Seth, Seth, Seth Rogen? That's his name, right? Are you talking about the movie where they move next to the fraternity? No. Come on. I gotta look it up now. We can't do this. So this have you guys seen the, the, the footage of um, Harry Styles spitting in Chris Pine's lap? I did watch that a couple times today, yeah. What the hell's going on? I don't know. They all claim it didn't happen. But something Have weird. you seen this game? <laughs> Something's going on. I've seen this. a clip of it. <laughs> Take this I... waltz. Take this waltz is the name of that movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I might have been in a room once where they played it. Take this okay. waltz. Oh, Jesus. Take this waltz and shove it. So I was listening to our last week's episode about Paul Massaro. Mm-hmm. And... Um, for some reason, it came to me that you could sing his name to the chorus of My Sharona. You could say, Paul Massaro, instead of My Sharona. Which, okay, maybe it's not that fascinating. But then I How realized... How would that occur to you? Um, I thought... I've had this conversation with you before. As a songwriter, I think I tend to... If some song's got the same syllables as something I'm hearing or reading, it sort of... Clicks in my brain. But guess who's? But guess who else's name you can do the exact same thing? Guess who else has the right amount? Gay of Rodriguez. There you go. Did you know that? It game? doesn't roll off. It doesn't yes, roll off it your does. tongue like rolls Palmasaro. right off your fucking tongue. Gay Rodriguez. It's better when you sing sticks with Gabe. No. I'm a little preoccupied because I, this is a big week. This is release week for the Here Comes a Zoo reissue. Yes. We're not talking about it. No. How, how, let's let's get into this because uh, please finally let's do this. Finally, finally, we're, we're vinyl. Fi- finally, it's coming out vinyly. Yes. Is this the going to be an announcement? Ever, I'm sorry, I didn't realize this. this. Is the first ever time you're releasing Here Comes a Zoo on vinyl? Yes. Wow. It's okay. true. That. It's coming yes. out on cassette, it's coming out on vinyl, it's coming out on VHS. Yes, they're going to re-release, Brutal Panda is re-releasing the There Went the Zoo DVD on VHS for the people that are inclined. How many of your albums came out in that period of time when like vinyl was totally dead and people were only doing CDs and vinyl hadn't made a comeback yet? Uh, four. Wow. Four, four or five maybe. And so um, is this the first of these that you're re- releasing in vinyl or some of the others? I mean, the first record that we put out on vinyl, well, the first record was on vinyl, but it was pretty much a promo thing. Yeah, it was promo. But the first mm. record that we actually released on vinyl was, what was it, Helium and Bum? Is yeah. that true? Helium and Bum. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. It's the first one that had a first run vinyl release. But this one will be good. Um, it's double. Got some Jack Douglas mixes on side D. Uh, what would you have me do? Has its own side. One side dedicated. Is it thirty-three or forty-five RPMs? I don't 
No, it might be 45. But just you at home, if, if it sounds like it's running slow, turn it to the other <laughs> speed. Yeah. Well, it's officially going to be announced for pre-release, but we, nobody knows when they're going to be ready, but right? I mean, right. It's, it's, this is 2022. Yeah. Well, you know, you're going to have the, the CDs for the tour. You'll have them in your hands by the time this thing is ready. This podcast, right? Yes. Let's let's hope. No, and, they're coming. And the first show is this weekend, Sunday. We're in Omaha. Omaha. Right? No, Lincoln. Are we no, in Lincoln? It's Omaha. It's Omaha. Is it Omaha? It's Omaha. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we're we're ready to go. We've got uh ready to, ready to do this. No more rehearsals, you're all set. Um, we're going to take tomorrow off and then we're going to rehearse on Thursday and Friday and then, then we're ready. So it sounds good. So it's good. It's, it's perfect right now. It's like the timing is perfect. So we just got to, if only we had vinyl. I know, but it's going to weigh you down. That's that weighs a whole lot. And you don't have to carry it around, but people can't get it. But the, the, it just sucks that people can't get the vinyl. But they'll have CDs, they'll have shirts, they'll have all kinds of stuff. And they'll have an evening with Local H. An evening with Local H. It's going to be quite the evening. We've got a, got a lot of stuff planned. It's going gonna, it's gonna to run the gamut of the, uh, what Local H has to offer in a live setting. You're going to get Local H every which way, sonically. The full spectrum of what we can... Did I say that? All right, fuck it. Hey, everybody, it's Eddie Applebaum. Hi, Eddie. Hello. How's it going, guys? It's going well. How are you? The kids uh, in bed? It has been... It is. I think it was Lauren O'Neill on one of these podcasts that said it's been a Gabe of a day. Um, <laughs> I have had a Gabe of a day uh kids <laughs> kids 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 so first anyway. thing eddie let's get right to it why do you hate this podcast why don't you like it <laughs> um it's a good question so i feel like i came up with a great concept with you about two years ago uh-huh. and you drove it into the fucking ground oh, is that what um, it is yeah deep down you just i mean i don't like coal miners couldn't dig deep enough to salvage this wreckage of a podcast. Now, what are right. you talking about? Dude, I love what, why, what in, why in the world would you think I don't like this podcast? Because there's something about your demeanor, uh, <laughs> you know, that just tells me that this podcast hasn't turned out the way you thought it was. Or thought it w- w- would. Be. Could not be could not be more wrong. I think you guys have done an amazing job of this. I mean, look, I you know the the, the concept of lifers. Uh, I think what you and I first talked about, Scott, was um, being able to share perspective, uh, tap into other people's perspective, um, especially in a world today where everybody perceives success and fame to be so easily obtained, um, you know, on a social media site or any, you know, something else. And do you think that's what we're doing here? 
No, no. What I'm saying is that's the opposite. That's you know the 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 beauty of a lifer. Whether you're our, whether you are a musician, a chef, an artist, uh, whatever you are, whatever you've dedicated your life to, um, you know, even, no matter how successful you got for the for most people, the path there is filled with peaks and valleys and amazing stories and lessons and so you know my the only thing i ever hoped for this podcast was that you would talk to interesting people obviously what are we at episode 82 you ran out of people you got me now um (laughs) but uh you know i think no you guys have i you you have read me all wrong um i think you i think the podcast is fantastic it needs you know the audience uh is uh very lucky to have to have you know all three of you guys all right well, all right well this me. is and maybe not this me. is as much fun as i thought it was going to be <laughs> <laughs> i don't like anything else you do but i love okay. the podcast <laughs> good <laughs> so why management why, why did you get into management great question so um and i was thinking no one i was going to come on here i was thinking about this so um right before i started so back to the dial it all the way back. I started working with you guys as an intern when I was 21 years old. I was still in college. And mm-hmm. I had been working, I'd been interning at record labels. I was interning at RCA, EMI, and Sire Records. And it was great. Like there was, I was working with, you know, at RCA, like Foo Fighters were coming out and Christina Aguilera and Sire Records, we were putting out like Guster. And, you know, it was, it was like cool 90s, like great 90s stuff, right? And, but I would see these artists come into the, uh, into the office and just, you know, walk by without even glancing at all the people in the office that were working very hard for them. Um, not, you know, they would go right to their A&R guy or the president of the label or whatever it is, knowing, having it being an intern there, knowing how passionate all the, 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 you know, all the people are or were. Or, you know, for these artists that they were working with. And it kind of made me feel like there was, you know, hey, look, I'm, I, I do I want to be a big fish in a little sea or a little fish in a big sea kind of situation? And at the, at, I was at RCA and somebody there, I don't remember who it was, came to my desk and said, hey, do you like the band Live? Um, and, you know, Throwing Copper was, an ama- you know, Mental Jewelry, Throwing Copper, these were records that, you know, as a teenager, I just was just blew my mind. And so I said, like, yeah, hell yeah. And, and they said, um, well, their manager is looking for an intern or an assistant or something. And so I, I, I immediately I went and chatted them up, had an interview. Um, and in the meeting, uh, in that in that interview, they said, oh, well, we also manage a couple other bands. Uh, we manage Local H. And I immediately so. At NYU, where I went to college at that time, MTVU, MTV University, which was there, I don't even know if it's, I think it still exists, but we didn't have a lot of options back in the late 90s. It wasn't like we had TikTok and Instagram or, you know, thousands of channels. We had, especially in the dorms, you had like five channels, and one of them was MTVU. And every hour, they would play this fucking video called Eddie Vedder by this band Local H. And I'm sitting in this, and I and, and I'm sitting in this interview, and they're like, "Oh, we manage local H." And I'm like, "Oh shit!" And it was immediately at that second, 
it, it dawned on me. I'm like, this. Wait a second. That video that I've been watching all night was starting to bug me. Wait, I think I really like this band. Now I'm like, I have a chance to maybe work with them. This could be kind of cool. And I got the job as the intern, and the intern job was answering phones, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and but bit by bit, I started to endear myself to. I guess it was, I mean, the people I work with, like Steve Smith and Peter Friedman. Um, but talking, like the artist would call, including yourself, and you would call up on the phone, and I would, I would have to, you know, instead of putting the artist on hold, or the artist on hold to wait for your manager, I would talk, and you would talk me up, and other artists would talk me up, and bit by bit, I started to build confidence um, in myself as a representative of sorts because my passion was always in music i grew up as an artist i grew up as a pianist i grew up in a musical family i loved artistry i loved music in general and i knew i wanted to do something in there but all of a sudden i realized wait a second i have this gateway now that's open to talk to talk to real artists not just you know college bands that you know my friends they were playing all of a sudden holy shit this is you know, I'm, I'm talking to scott lucas i'm talking to Ed Kowalczyk. They might not give a shit about me, but like I give a shit about them. And I think what happened is, is I never really intended to be a manager. Um, but I think what happened is guys like you, a couple other, you know, members of bands and, and you know, the people that I worked with gave me the confidence that said, hey, look, Eddie, you are you probably are pretty you can be pretty good at this. Um, you got to figure out how to help these bands, though. Like, what can you do? for us, not to be an intern, not to just answer phones. What can you do? Um, and it was, and, I, and I'm not saying this just to, to create good content with you guys and to make you, right. to, you know, but the, the turning point was when I built the street team for Local H. Um, I don't know if you remember this. This was way before the days of obviously social media and anything else, but like being able to reach new fans new audiences potential fans was the hardest fucking thing in the world like we talk today about how hard it is to reach people yet we can reach millions of people in a second on our phone but like back in the, the late 90s and early 2000s it was like people stood on street corners passing out flyers and you know there was there was very little rhyme or reason to it and what i noticed about you guys was you had this again a very very devout following who wanted to see you succeed more than anything else. And so um, I, I helped build a street team of, of, of kids that went out there and started to work for you and promote Local H. Well, it's so, funny because I keep running into people that worked for that street team. Like even like today or yesterday, Bob from Brutal Panda brought up the street team. And he oh, was shit. right. Gabe, he was talking about like what we used <laughs> to do with you guys with the street team was like stickers and stuff like that. Yeah. I couldn't believe he brought that up, and he was part of the street team. That's crazy. Yeah, there's there there was more than just Dewey. Um, there was <laughs> we <laughs> we. I mean, he was he was great, still is great. Um, but uh, no, we had like a we, we built like this legion, and and it was great because at that at then when we did sign, and we'll get to all this stuff in a minute. But like when we did sign to Palm Pictures, they became really supportive too, and be, you know that street team became a big part of. Uh, part of the marketing of here comes the zoo. But again, just going back, like what got me into being a manager was all of a sudden, I think it was this street team that made me think, Oh, wait a second. I actually can do something 
for these artists. Like even at 20 years old or whatever it was, I can do something. Um, whereas, and, and, and again, well, if you weren't interested in being a manager, what, what were you doing at, at Friedman Smith? Well, that's the thing. I, as I like, you know, at that age, does anybody really, I mean, you have interests, but you know, it's rare that people know exactly what they're going to do. I mean, unless you've, you know, been trained to be a baseball player since you're, you know, little leaguer, um, you know, your path is generally not set in college, you know, was it the best is becoming a manager, the best decision I ever made? I have no idea. I mean, I, <laughs> I have genuinely loved, um, doing what I do over the years for bands like yourself and others. Um, what were your, what were your parents doing? Like, what, like, weren't they like songwriters? Yes. So my dad was a very successful songwriter and arranger. Um, he had, uh, I don't know what, 40 top 10 hits that he was involved in. He would, he won a lot of like Clio awards and jingles. He actually was an A&R guy, head of A&R for Warner brothers back in the sixties, signed some really cool artists back then. My mom was actually a classical pianist. Um, and so I grew up in music obviously, and they wanted me, certainly wanted me to be in the arts. Um, I think my mom wanted me, I think she wanted me to be a classical pianist. Um, it just, right. you know, I tried really hard. Um, I went to school for it. I had, I even went to Juilliard pre-college for it. Um, I, it just wasn't meant to be. Um, but it taught me a lot. It was, it was you know, an amazing experience. Um, what, what were some of the songs that your dad were, was involved with? The, the top uh, believe, hits okay. I know. mean, top, a little, a little song called stand by me was his, mm -hmm. uh, the big one. Um, the bridge, that string section that he was the arranger. He, so my dad wrote and worked, arranged many songs with the drifters and Benny mm. King and worked with Lieber and Stoller and, and a, on a bunch of stuff. And I guess, so he was the arranger and he wrote the bridge of, uh, and the arrangement of, uh, stand by me. Um, he did Rose in Spanish Harlem, calendar girl, uh, God, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many. And then he worked with Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr. Um, I don't know some of the some of the big heavyweights from back in the day. Um, honestly, Wikipedia probably knows better than I do. Um, he was my dad. Um, uh, and then my mom. My mom wrote. <laughs> this is not her claim to fame, but it is interesting. For any kids of the '80s, there was a show, a short-lived show on Fox called Small Wonder, oh. and well, Do you remember, remember that? that? Oh, yeah. She wrote the theme song and sang it. <laughs> I don't remember it, but He's I remember the show. Small Wonder. I love Small Wonder. Small Wonder's like Wonder is about that robot college. girl, right? Yes, right. Vicky the Robot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd like to say it put me through college. It, uh, I think it put me through the first trimester of third grade. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, I don't know, we loved that show. It was fun to watch. It was my, but, so that was... Uh, but she did. My mom did amazing stuff as well. But um, yeah, my dad, my dad was involved in a lot of amazing, a lot of amazing music over the years. It certainly, certainly rubbed off. But they were in the music business, and you're in the music business. So Correct. it's like sort of a family, family business. You know, at this I don't point. think I was never going to be a doctor. Um, I was never going to be the first Jewish hockey player, as much as I wanted to be, oh, like NHL on. level. 
No. I mean, but... it's too late now. I don't know. I mean, actually, there, there has to have been a Jewish hockey player. I'll look it up. <laughs> Do you guys know any Jewish NHLers? It never even <laughs> occurred to me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, right? Sure. <laughs> hey Eddie, do you know um, Adam? Do you know Adam Fox on the Rangers? Uh, there you go. He's Great a Jew. Call. I should have known that. First of all, as a diehard Ranger fan, I am mortified that I didn't know that. Um, and as a Jew, Fox is kind of a given. I mean, it's not Fox Baum, but right. it is Fox. And there's a <laughs> lot of Jewish foxes out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll say there are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was your first, what happened on your first day? What was your first day working at uh, Friedman and Smith like? Do you remember that? Your first day you came in and, and uh, Steve had just gotten off the phone with me and he was upset uh, because I passed on something. Oh, no, I don't know if that was the first day, but I do remember. And I know exactly what you're talking about. You passed on a Coca-Cola commercial Uh and not only a Coca-Cola commercial, like a Coca-Cola commercial that was like, you know, really something. Um, Uh I thought it was great. Good for you. Stand by your, you know, stick to your guns. But uh, Steve was not happy. Apparently, apparently he earned earned his living, um, you know, from his artists making money. So. Uh, but yeah, that was, that, that's what, would you remember that? It was a, it was a Coke commercial. I remember there was a Coke commercial and they had it all, all, they sent me a copy and it was all edited yeah. and it was, it, but it, the whole idea of it was bullshit, you know, that like, you know, it'll bring us all together. And it was like, just, I was just like, ugh, I don't want to be a part of this. You know, the funny thing is, you know? and I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you would, but maybe you would. And RC, like commercial, I mean, the, you know, the, the mentality, the perception of doing ad campaigns has changed so drastically right. over the years. Um, you know, forget Coca-Cola, like RC Cola, <laughs> you know, we would, you know, entertain those, that idea, you know, for a lot less than, I think it was like $500,000. Maybe I'm making this up, but like, I feel like it was a five, like the Coke commercial was like 500 grand. Wait, did they want to use, did they want to use Bound or something? Or are you going to be? Performing like a whole no, Coke it wasn't song. from Bound. It wasn't Bound. What well, I don't know what it was. It became like Voldemort in the office, though. I don't think we we don't we didn't talk about it after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember about recording uh, "Here Comes the Zoo"? I mean, was that oh, the man. first record that you were fully on board for? Yeah. Or were so, you there during "Pack Up the Cats" too? No. So no, I, I I think so. I started interning probably right at the end of "Pack Up the Cats." And obviously you had, you know, a little personnel change and I was, you know, I was there. I was actually very much a part of the process when we were shopping your record deal. Um, right. You know, we, I remember actually at that time, that's, I, I, this is when you guys and, you know, your manager, Steve Smith and my, my boss um, started letting me have some responsibility and, and in, in, uh, introducing me to certain people. Um, and I, I remember Ron Berman from Roadrunner Records, who really wanted to sign you guys. He and I struck up a relationship. Lee Lust at Electra. A lot of the oh, guys Lee, I, yeah. I still know and are like Lee and I. I mean, I love Lee so much. Yeah. And and you know these guys. I met them when I was sending out demos. Here comes the zoo demos, 
um, back in whatever year that was. And, um, you know, the, the series of events, I think, that led up to me getting in, like, to actually being involved with you guys. And at this point, I wasn't, I was not an intern anymore. I was, I was a paid assistant um, at mm. that time. And it was clear, I think, to this, to Steve, your manager, my boss, that I was deeply passionate about your band, um, more so than anything else that they were working with. And at the time, I don't know remember what it was, but Steve was had other, he had some other things outside going on and he was out of the office a bunch. And I think I had just kind of, kind of shuffled in a little bit into your world. And as we started, I started to, you know, I was doing A&R admin. I think that's what it would be called right now, put, helping put your record together with Michael Alago, your A&R guy. Right. Um, and who was amazing. It was, you know, and, and at that time, so Michael, I'm sure you've, I think you've talked about him before on these podcasts a couple of times. Michael, who, you know, Metallica. I mean, Michael and Metallica go hand in hand. And I was um, very aware of who Michael was. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden I found myself in a meeting with M Michael and Jack Douglas um, talking about this record. And then a few days later, I'm sitting around a table. I remember this like it's yesterday. And we went out to Indian food with Jay Messina, Jack Douglas, Michael Alago, you, me, and Brian Sinclair. And I, mm. that was it. And I'm sitting there. This was the, it was the night before we were making the record. And I'm sitting there like, what the fuck am I doing here? I have <laughs> no business being at this table. Like, and I could imagine that you guys were thinking the same thing. Like, who is this guy? Why is he here? Is it, you know, and, um, you know, I obviously Jack Douglas, I mean, legend. And I mean, I, my second son is named Lennon. You know, I, I am very mm -hmm. steeped in his history. Um, and I was a huge fan already of the, I was never, I'm not a production. I'm never, I'm not, a, I'm not like, you, you know, you are an encyclopedia when it comes to records. You know every producer, every record, every you know you know minuscule bands that influence bigger bands. That's not me, but I did know Jack Douglas made some of my favorite songs. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I hope I mean it's, you know Dream On, um, which he which he didn't record. No. And no. No. It wasn't. He didn't make Dream On. No, I don't think he worked on the first Aerosmith record. I I, uh, well, then maybe maybe I didn't like him. But maybe I didn't. I wasn't in, in as on, much awe. He him did Toys in the Attic and Rocks and Jaw the Line. Did, I knew. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, either way, I knew he made some of, some of my favorite records. You guys, I you know, were at that point in time the biggest band I'd ever been able to break bread with. Um, you know, they would and, and you know Michael Alago, and I'm sitting here getting a free Indian meal. Um, it was it was wild, um, and from that point on, I, I remember you know I was in the studio with you guys at It Is What It Is in Hoboken, New Jersey, yeah. um, and we had this like you know not only obviously Jack and you guys you had like Jerry Only coming in you had like were you there that know, day was, that Jerry came in yeah it was amazing <laughs> and I remember I so I ran in I met him again at the Metallica show at Soldier Field that we played that you guys played a few years ago. And oh, that's right. we went, and what's that? That's right. Yeah. And I we forgot about that. He, he remembered very well 
coming and playing on, uh, well, it was on Rock and Roll Professionals, right? No, it was Keep Your Girlfriend, and we Keep also had him sing on uh, The Misfits yes. cover. Yes. Yeah, I forgot Jerry was there that day. Yeah, totally forgot yeah. that. But it was amazing, and, and I mean, like, you know, I, 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 you guys were making what felt to me like a legendary record. I mean, Hands on the Bible, still to this day, one of my, you know, the tops, my favorite songs ever written. Um, it, even if it wasn't written by you, it'd still be one of my favorite songs ever written. It wasn't? Um, it wasn't written by me? No, even if it wasn't. <laughs> okay. Even well, if it thank wasn't, you. It would, it, no, I mean, it, and, and um, that was, yeah, I mean, I think that was my first, I, I don't remember why your manager, Steve, my boss, I don't remember why he wasn't there as much, but whatever it was, it was that crack that in the door, the crack or whatever, the door crack that let me in. Um, and right. I think that I always look back on that and that was my first managerial experience. I don't know if I did a, I didn't probably didn't do a very good job. I was just more of, you know, coordinating everything and just making sure shit didn't fall apart. Um, but it didn't fall apart. So, no. <laughs> you know, I did, I did something okay. Um, right. And look, we had nice budgets and, you know, it was great. Like the label, everybody was happy. Everybody was excited. You had a great publicist, you had marketing teams, you had all these people just ready to go. And then, 9-11 happened, I think, right? And then it all went away. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there was, uh, yeah. But, it, you know, those were, that was, it was, an, for me, I, look, I know it was an amazing experience for you. Making every record you make, obviously, has, has its own, um, you know, feeling and tone for you guys. But for me, that was, that was, I mean, there's many records I've been a part of that, um, I, it, I probably would have a hard time recalling even if you gave me a day, um, but this one, you know, sticks with me. I can feel this one 20 years, 20, almost 21 years later. If you want it, then it's great. If you do, you'll have to wait. Doctor, help me medicate. Doctor, give it to me straight.
So what do you remember about tech school? I don't. I didn't go to tech school. Okay. Now, you don't remember this was the, the most epic prank we ever pulled on our, uh, oh. Oh. On our crew? We made them go to tech school? I do. Wait, but you got to tell the story. I, I vaguely remember it, but now I do. So, so we were on the Here Comes the Zoo tour, and some disaster had happened, I think, in Madison. And so uh, Scotty was working with us, and uh, that other guy who ended up ripping us off. Um, Which and, guy was and that? Josh? Was, was that the guy's name? I don't know. Yeah, I'll have to go back that. in my notes. Yeah, but they messed up, and so somehow somebody said, "Yeah, you're gonna, ha- you guys are gonna have to go to tech school. We're gonna have to send you to tech school on your day off." And like, tech school, that's not a thing. And like, oh yeah, it is. They'll teach you about this and teach you about that. So I forget where we were, but that was our day off, and they were gonna go to tech school. And you were like making all the calls, <laughs> all these calls. So yeah, you're, you're you're all set up. They're they're expecting you. And they brought in an amp to get fixed at tech school. And they show up. You, I guess you hunted down some college. And they showed up to a college <laughs> as, asking where the room was to go to tech school. And the people oh are like, what? Tech school? What the hell is that? Oh, my God. That's and they spent right. all day looking for tech school. Going into rooms was like, is this where tech school is? And they're like yelling at you all day. <laughs> I feel you know what it's all coming back to me I feel like I blocked this is this is one of those repressed memories um for my sanity my brain repressed this for good reason um maybe I shouldn't have had the confidence that I had <laughs> <laughs> well I mean you were down with the idea you thought it was a great idea you're like oh this is gonna be so much fun and then uh when they got really mad you like call me like, look, I don't have the time for this, Scott. You know, I'm working. I'm busy, man. I, why did you do this? I'm like, <laughs> you did it all. That's really, I do. You know what? It is all coming back to me. This was was this on the Chevelle tour potentially? Yes, I saw the I Madison know. show that Chevelle opened. Was that the disaster show? Um, I think so. It was the one that like Bunny Carlos was at. Yeah. Well, what was, the, what was? Do you remember what the problem was? What the disaster? I can't remember what what happened, but there was something, and it, it might might have been something that was like super minor, right. or you know maybe my guitars were out of tune or something. But something had happened. I was like, all right, you guys got to go to tech school. We can't, we can't, we can't keep on like this. This is why you have no techs now. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So then you went your own way for a while. We, we kind of parted ways for a while. Who were who you working with then? So let's see. Um, at that time, we ended up, who was I working with? Uh, it was, so the fire theft, which was the configuration of Sunday Real Estate right. with uh, Jeremy and William. Um, they put out a record. We were managing, let's see, Tracy Bonham, Mm -hmm. um, still managing live. uh, And then there was this band that I think, you know, it was interesting. So this was probably around 2003, 2004. Um, I had worked, every band I had worked with 
professionally had already been established. Just, I, I, it wasn't my doing. I didn't discover this band. And right. there was a piece of me, I think, I guess I was like 24, 25 years old. And I really wanted to take something on myself. And I had found this band playing in Williamsburg, Brooklyn at some little art gallery in the middle, like really out there in Brooklyn. Um, and it was made up of the, there was about 20 people there. And it was made up of the members of Space Hog. It was the guitarist from Space Hog, Richard Steele. It was the drummer from Chibomato, uh, Joppa. It was Peter Yanowitz, Peter Yanowitz, who was the drummer for the Wallflowers and Natalie Merchant, and who was the bassist in this band. And then there was this girl, this young girl, this 18-year-old girl, Chantal, um, and they, that Chantal Claret, and they blew me away. I just, I don't remember, I don't remember why I was there, but I was there. Um, mm. And I introduced myself to them afterwards. It was it was this band called Morningwood, um, yeah. and again, this was very very beginning. Um, and and they had, I, I I went up to them. I said, I don't know what you guys are doing, but you're fucking great, and I would love to work with you. And I this is who I am, and I I managed local H and this stuff, and they're like, cool, it's you know whatever. Um, and it was one, it was a really interesting experience. For I, it took me about a year and a half. And I built them up to, I basically stopped everything else and took this band on um, and built them with them, with their help, um, all of us, all five of us, into the probably the hottest band in New York City. Um, and at that time, there was a lot of bands coming out of New York that were getting record deals, not blowing up, but were getting record deals. And the Strokes had just gotten a big deal, I think, um, with RCA. And there was, some, there was a lot of stuff happening. And... Uh, this, I got them a big record deal and with Capitol Records and um, we went on we had a hit a relative hit song they were in some movies we had we toured we did all kinds of stuff made a record with an amazing producer Gil Norton um, mm-hmm. who you would probably you know he's made uh, Echo and the Bunnyman records Foo yeah we know who Gil records. Norton is yeah, yeah. Was great. and that was another that was the top two experiences by the way up to experiences I've ever had in the studio where it was with you guys at It Is What It Is and with Gil Norton at Rack Studios in London making this Morningwood record, which was just brilliant. And oh, you know, it was in London. Wow. It was in London at Rack Studios where Radiohead recorded Kid A, I believe. Um, Michael Jackson recorded some shit there. Um, a lot of, a lot of stuff. And it was, you know, it was guys like Jack, guys like Gil, um, they're cut from a different cloth. They, I don't know if they always were, but like whatever they did, they got to a certain point and they're just fucking geniuses. Um, they, whatever they do, like maybe it's, un- and look, the bands that they work with obviously bring a lot to the table too, but somehow for a, you know, a, a period of time, they just consistently make amazing sounding records. Um, and right. watching guys like Jack with you, watching guys like Gil with Morningwood, um, seeing the little little sprinkles of, you know, whatever that, you know, they put on these records. Um, you know, it, it was it was pretty amazing. But um and it, so, you know, I had this band and and uh, we did well. They did well. They toured. We we were in movie they were in the Sex in the City movie. We did lots of touring. But uh yeah, that was that's that's where I spent the next six years of my life, basically in Morningwood, surrounded by Morningwood. <laughs> surrounded, waking up every day with Morningwood. Waking wood. up and going to sleep 
and everything. Right. Yeah. Were they one of those so, bands that were like on MTV on like a, a reality show where they were gigging and stuff and they were like they won a contest? No, or were, I wish that they, wasn't that, them. That, they no. would, we would have no. made a lot of money from that, but no, they were not. Mm-hmm. Um, we earned I it they the were. right. We earned it the hard way. Okay. Right. You're thinking yeah. about uh, bands on the run. That's is the that show what you're was? thinking about? Oh, I, I think so. The show. band that you're thinking. Oh, I love that show. Was that your favorite show? It was a great show. What? Oh, it was a good show. But the band you're thinking of was, what was the name of the band that won then? It was only one season, oh, right? A, but then, yeah, but then it was Puff like five guys in the band. Season, right? You know, no, that was a different show. Oh. Puff Daddy's show was different. But what this, was the name of Puff Daddy's like, show? This was making the, making the band. Making the band, right, right, wow. right. This wasn't it. This was, to, this was local bands from New York trying to yeah, make yeah, it, yeah. and they were showing them gigging. Flicker the band was Tinder, Flicker, Flicker Stick. stick. Flick. Yeah. That's what he was thinking of. I almost said I Tinder Sticks. Wow. Did you Google that, or did this just come to you? I Googled just it. Came I to thought me. for some reason, I thought, it, I don't remember Flicker Stick, but. Who am I, I talking that's what, to? <laughs> Flicker Stick. You guys knew. Like that, that's somewhere in your brain. It's been sitting there for. All these years, flicker stick. It's playing a room. They're indelible. Yes, so. Playing indelible. The indelible <laughs> flicker stick. <laughs> well, you don't watch stuff like that, Eddie? What do you watch? I watch <laughs> I watch reruns of Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. And I've been falling asleep to Frasier a lot recently. His dulcet tones and yes. David Hyde, by the way. David Hyde Pierce, Niles Crane, one of the best characters ever, I think. Um, it's a well-cast funny, show. Funny, funny. Um, it's a great show. Interesting. So what now, Eddie? Well, I mean, where's the music business going? What would you say to young bands that, right. that are coming through? How are they going to do it these days? This is the lifer's question, right? Like, this is where we need my... Well, look, I, you know, I'm going to go. So you guys, one of the things that I admire the most about local H um, is the fact that you, you have devout fans and it's, you know, a lot of bands can say they have devout fans, but when you talk about, you know, 10, 20, 25 plus years of people being truly emotionally connected to an artist um not just to a song but to an artist um that is not something that is easily obtained these days and so you know right now we deal i was like we, we live in a tiktok a social media in the tiktok world and i'm i'm just look you and i have talked about tiktok we've talked about instagram we've talked about all but kinds is, of things well, is tiktok as big as you think it is? I mean, it's huge. Well, look, I think okay. it's huge. My my guess, I this is just me, and I'm probably get you know just lambasted for this, but like, I think <laughs> TikTok is going to be, you know, irrelevant for music artists um, in a year's time. I I just I think you know it's it's just like everything else. It comes in waves, and you've had a lot of artists yeah. getting signed off of TikTok, obviously. However. Um, just like everything, there's always going to be something new coming. The interesting thing that we see right now is that you can have millions of followers on TikTok, on Instagram, whatever, and then go to play a show 
and five people show up. And I'm seeing that. Yeah, literally, not I'm, not talking, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I mean, we're talking millions of followers. You know, you have, we talk, so everybody's, it's, it's a numbers game, right? Everybody's interested in data. And even, I mean, labels are guilty of this too. They will, right. they will look at an art, they will look at a potential artist, even somebody who's not famous online for music, but oh, maybe they have a million followers. So the easy thing is generating songs. You can, there's a bunch of songwriters out there that, that can jump into a room and write a hit song. The tough thing is, you know, being able to connect with an audience. And so where a lot of labels, what, what a lot of labels are looking at right now, what I think they think they're great at, and some are great at this, but some aren't, is identifying those people that can really make a connection. So, you know, you can have millions of followers, but why is somebody, you can have an amazing voice, you can have an amazing song, but why is somebody going to come to see you play? What is some, what is, what are you giving to people that they can't get just by scrolling through their phone? Because right now we're seeing content where, you know, bands are competing with, you know, you know, politics, they're competing with cat videos, they're competing with everything. You can, we're, we're, we're accustomed to watching videos of people, you know, mass shootings and then scrolling and seeing girls bouncing on trampolines and being like, oh, now I'm focused on this. Yeah. So, you know, the, the way our brains are trained right now, we don't need to leave the house. COVID also helped that as, along as well. We don't, right. don't need to go do anything. One of the things that you guys, I mean, truly, and, and, you know, the blessing that you have being able, and I know we're not playing stadiums right now, but being able right. to tour 25, 30 years into a career is an amazing feat. And that's because of the work you did 15, 20 years ago, continuing to get out there and play, because what you provide as an artist is something they can't get anywhere else. A local H show is a fucking local H show. So when you ask, what's your advice to bands right now? Make yourself like indispensable, like make yourself unique, like make your give, like create an experience for somebody. You know, we all need escapism right now. Like our world is fucked. <laughs> like the world is a fucking mess. I don't care what side of the fucking, you know, spectrum you're on. Like it is a mess. Yeah. Music is supposed to take you out of that momentarily you know i can go like i you know I, I can spend a lot of money to go to madison square garden to see some band play i can have a better experience in a mid-sized venue seeing local h that is why you know that is, that is why you guys are still able to go out there and play as much as again you should be playing bigger venues and i hope we still will you have this devout audience that has been you know with you every step of the way but for good reason, you earned that. And I think what's happened these days is a lot of artists think that they, you know, are entitled to audiences. Um, but it's that, as hard as it was, like we talked earlier about having the street teams and having to stand outside and pass out flyers to get, you know, people to come to your show or to get to know who you are. That was really hard. But what's really hard, yes, you can reach millions of people now. But it's even harder to get somebody to come to your show. Well, you heard them, folks. Go out and see Local H. They're starting tour this Sunday. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks for coming on and talking us up. And yeah, good job. Did any of this get recorded? Like, or did any of this come through clear, Ben? No, we we haven't even started recording yet. This was the warm up. 
<laughs> yeah, this is. You're a big Who fan, right? I op- I opened this Blantons for nothing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, not for nothing. Yeah, at least you got a buzz out of this. I did. Do I seem buzzed? I got a better question. I got a better Give question. Me a better question. Because this this is one thing I never got to talk to you about. But one oh. day, I don't know what year oh, this God. was, and Scott knows oh, the day. But I woke up at like five in the morning, and I looked on my phone. And I saw a tweet or something from you, and it said something to the effect of, oh, my God, I have an artist in Moscow, and he's un- he's, oh, he's lost, and he, he can't find his way home. I don't know what to do. <laughs> what the hell were you thinking when, when you got How did you find this out? Brian St. Clair calls me from the airplane. He's boarding in airplane. Moscow. Calls me from the airplane. And said, I don't know where Scott is. I've been trying to reach him, but I'm getting on this fucking plane and you got to figure this out, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it was, <laughs> um, wow. It was, a, it, was, it was a little kinder than that, but that was the, uh, that was the message because he was coming home. Brian's coming home. Scott's not coming home. Um, yeah. I immediately call, at the time, my partner, Matt Vogel, this was, it was like six in the morning, my time when I got this call and I wake up Matt and I'm like, we got a problem. We can't find Scott. He's somewhere in Russia. Um, and guys, I gotta be honest. I, and maybe this is a, I, is, I've repressed it cause it was so traumatic. I don't remember how I actually got a hold of you. Um, or found out what the fuck happened. I don't know, you know, maybe it was the promoter. I reached out to the promoter. I think you had had, you had gone out and had some drinks with the promoter, maybe. No, I'd um, gone out with people from CNN. And I was like, um, these are people from CNN. I'll be safe. Uh, no. Was it the real so CNN the, or was it like the, the communist news network? <laughs> it's pretty good. No, it was the real CNN. It I was like real people. On the spot. Who had um, been there, and they they knew all the places to go to, and they're right. you know we'd been sitting in the hotel all week. We couldn't go anywhere. People were watching us. We were being right. bugged, and you know we finally play the show, and these guys are like, "Come on out, you know we'll we'll, we'll take we'll show you around town." I'm like, "Finally, great," and uh, and then uh, they went home, and I was like, "I'm I'm cool. I know how to get home. I'll be fine. I'll just mm. hail a cab." Yeah, and just for for the sake of argument, I think Brian didn't know what happened either. He wasn't like no, he leaving. Didn't. About, no, leaving. He, no, oh no, of course yeah. not. Oh, I'm I just saying for, for the people listening. <laughs> I would, I would, I'm going to give, I would give him and anybody the benefit of the doubt that if they oh, knew know, what yeah. happened, that just they would stick up. around for a second. Um, <laughs> well, Brian had Brian had a gig. He had, he had to get back to the states because he had a gig with Cheap Trick. Ah, right. Well, That's again, with those fucking. What I do guys? remember is I was calling consulates. Matt's calling consulates. We're all calling consulates. And eventually you called me, Scott. And you right. said, you called me. You didn't sound very good. Um, you're, 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 you had been uh, choked out, I believe. Right. Yeah. But I think by the time I, I got back to the hotel, which was, which was uh, just a nonstop Two days later. How, uh, well, no, how, <laughs> how a day later. Well, right? I, I woke up and it was dark and I was in a, uh, 
dark stairwell and I didn't have mm. anything. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have money. And how I got from there back to the hotel is a small miracle. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. So by the time I got back there, I believe I was able to send you an email. Um, but, but also, I owed money to the cab driver. And so he's got, he's got the security. They're running around trying to find me. And I'm going wherever I can go because there was no internet access up in the room. So I had to go down into the lobby and hide and try to send out emails. And I remember sitting there emailing back Brutal. and forth with you and, and right in front of me were like five pairs of legs. And I look up and, and they're all like, it was like a movie, like Home Alone. They're all sitting there looking down at me like, here's the guy. Oh, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was not a good scene. Um, no. You could have been no. a Britney Griner. You could have been. In, you could have been the first Britney Griner. Even you have no idea what goes on over there. You could have been not only beaten no, up, but like I didn't have a one hitter. And... <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. It was like when we we went to the a police station. It was, it was pretty scary. Yeah, I can only Uzi's imagine. and everything. It was just. It was nuts. It took, it took, you, you got out of there two days later, though. I remember. I feel like it was two days later, right? Right. Yeah. Well. Yes, I actually, but, you know, but I still couldn't I get like my say I had anything to do with helping. I don't think I did anything. I don't think anybody could do anything. I think you got yourself out of that situation yourself. Hmm. I think we made a lot of calls. We ate, we talked to a lot of Matt and I. I remember vividly speaking to a lot of people that I don't know if they helped. Well, I mean, if you hadn't gotten the promoter. Right. go back to the hotel to look for me you know that oh, right. that's kind of what what once that right. happened everything was going to be okay but yeah i mean that was second and maybe he was in on it maybe no. that was just me my paranoid no. jewish neurotic whatever oh, no i don't think so no i mean there was a lot of shady things going on like there was a lot of payoffs happening and you know and the the, the police made me sign this thing saying that I wasn't attacked and that, you know, I just lost everything. And it was just, it was like nonstop shadiness. And then, I mean, the worst part was that, you know, I kind of lost my voice for like a couple of years, you, you know, I mean, that was, that was the really hard part about it. There, I, I, I remember you very well could have been as where, you know, a situation where your career was done. That yeah. could have been it. I was thinking Just I was going to start doing Tom Waits. Russia. Tom Waits type. I was going to go yeah. the Tom Waits you, route. I mean, maybe the, the piano has been round. drinking. That could have worked. It still could. Hey, man, Dylan's still at it. <laughs> I got I to gotta mention something just dawned on me. I, and I, this probably was better to talk about four hours ago. But <laughs> eBay. The eBay show. Do you guys right. remember the eBay show? I got I that written right here in my notes. Do you remember the eBay ah. show? Because that's that's well, when I met you, you the first time. Why did that was you, the first time you, you met? Okay, so I'm gonna was, wait, what Scott. I can't believe that's the first time Gabe met you. That doesn't sound right. It's one of the we first dated, times. We, on, we dated online for a bit, but <laughs> it wasn't until then that we met in person. Okay. Good. Um, yeah. Com. Gabe, here's a, here's here's a question for you. 
do you remember what I smelled like the day I met you? If I want to guess, I'm going to say curve cologne, but that's that's a guess. Uh, <laughs> Night locks. Cat pee. So you were in a meth lab earlier in the day? <laughs> yes. No. So first of all, this those are the so the eBay show um this was actually one of my crowning achievements, I think, with you guys. I had this idea to auction you off on eBay. And I think it was Brian's later, idea. Was it? No, it wasn't. It was Brian's <laughs> idea, yeah. No way. No okay. way. All right. All right. Get Brian on the horn. Yeah, sure. I don't sure. think it was. I really genuinely don't think it was. If it was, so be it. I think it was. I do think it was mine. Okay. Um, either way. I know I was heavily involved in it. Yes, and you were. <laughs> Kurt Loder, all of a sudden, two weeks later, Kurt Loder's on MTV News talking about you guys and eBay and the eBay show. And it was I, going, in, going into the final day, there was a bidding war between two people and one person won. And it was this guy, Kevin Crack, who has become a dear friend of mine still to right. this day. Um, the day of the eBay show, so Kevin flies me out because I had talked I had been talking to him for a while and we built a relationship before your show and he's like hey you gotta be here you gotta be here so he flew me out to the show and it was where was it it was like in, in the outskirts of Chicago right it was some yeah it was probably <sighs> where he, he probably where he lives you know like it was his, yeah it was it was and it was his local bar that he liked to go to right um and I at the time I was living with this girl in Brooklyn who had a bunch of cats and mm. I get, my flight was at like eight in the morning and I get in the shower and I had my suitcase laid out and I get in the shower and I come out and I thought I smelled cat pee, but I said, okay, whatever. Maybe the cat peed somewhere in the house, whatever. I get, I go through <laughs> security and the, guy, the security guard's like, dude, you smell like fucking cat piss. <laughs> it's, negative 100 degrees in Chicago. My, <laughs> apparently, the, the cat had pissed all over my winter jacket and everything in my bag. Gabe, was it you or Mike? I think it was Mike McGee who had to take me to Walmart to buy a jacket so I could not freeze to death in Chicago. I got off the plane, had to buy a jacket at Walmart, um, but everybody at the bar that I... I walked in and said, dude, you smell like cat piss. All night I smell like cat, <laughs> cat piss. So I figured maybe you would remember that. But I don't remember, but uh, yeah. I didn't take it to Walmart to get the jacket. It must have been Mike. It must have been Mike. Pack Up the Cat Pee is my favorite Local H album. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, Eddie. I think you did it. Did I? Didn't you? I feel like I just talk, I've talked for an hour and you guys just sat there being like, what the fuck? That's the show you pitched me, Eddie, back in the day. You said, do a show where guys like me come on. We talk for an hour. No, I pitched, you, I pitched you Star Talk, but that was taken. Uh-huh. I pitched you Call Her Daddy. That was taken. Uh-huh. Of course. So, we and then the Joe Rogan experience, but... Oh, uh, God. Gabe's yeah. done that, yeah. Gabe gave oh, yeah? Gabe's a frequent guest on that show. No, Is he, it call her daddy as in call her daddy or call this woman's daddy? No, she needs to call her dad. 
Okay, she's got to call her dad. Like, it's not, it's she doesn't want to be called daddy. She doesn't want no, to be called talk, daddy. They, they talk about, it's just girls talking about stuff. And it's you like this? really entertaining. Yes. <laughs> if you like flicker stick, you're going to love call her daddy. <laughs> now, who can remember the names of the other three bands that were on Bands on the Run? Oh, this is a good question. Okay, there was an all-female band, right? Uh-huh. What was their name? Yeah. And I keep wanting to say it starts with a W or an S. It starts with an H. But it's oh, got a no. W. It ends Wild with Orchid. a W. Wild Orchid. Wild Orchid. Is it another band? <laughs> well, it might be. No. no? Oh. <laughs> it's that's, not that's, Wild Orchid? <laughs> no. It that starts with an H. Blanton's. Yeah. What is it? That band was It starts Harlow. with an H. Harlow. Harlow. Oh. Yeah. You got no, two more. One of them's like the worst band name ever. Well, they both are. One what one of them it? I don't even remember. This Josh Dode's band? Oh I don't yeah. Remember that. He, okay. They were out quick. No. No, they were like super professional and they were getting so mad cuz Flickerstick was just a bunch of drunken bums <laughs> and they would beat them every time cuz they had that cover of uh the Mazzy Star song. <laughs> right. And they would just like, you know, really go into it and and the Josh Doty band was so pissed off, like we should be winning this thing. Okay, but you don't know, forget the fourth. You guys pretend to be so cool and so cred. Yeah, you spent a good portion of your lives watching this uh, schlock. I mean, it was on for like three months. But the you know, fourth band—that's three months of your life. Oh, the I went to see band. them play when they played the Metro. Did of you? Did Flickerstick? <laughs> yeah, I hung out. Oh, I was. I was I'm going to hang out with Flickerstick. I hung out with Flickerstick all night. All right, what's the fourth band? Fourth band was Soulcracker. Soulcracker. Oof. With his <clears> lead <throat> singer, vocals and trumpet, this guy Beastie. Mm. Did they wait, so did they what did they have a career of any kind or no? I don't think so. They don't have a Wikipedia. The only the only one of the four bands that has a Wikipedia page of its own is Oh, wait, that was Soul Asylum and Cracker. Yeah. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but here's something exciting. Flicker Stick reunited last year and they're they're now planning on a whole tour i heard i heard they were uh headlining coachella yeah <laughs> they got an ebay show coming up yeah 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 kurt loader's talking about you guys uh, well that's cool kurt loader's talking about us unfortunately he's talking about us on ebay Face. 